Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Health Leader Forge is a production of the University of New Hampshire's College of Health and Human Services. Today's guest is Edgar J. Helms, Jr., better known as Ned to his friends and colleagues here at the University of New Hampshire, where he has served as the director of the Institute for Health Policy and Practice since 2001. Ned has had a remarkable career that has spanned leadership roles in the military, as well as state and federal governments, and in both for-profit and not-for-profit entities, to include starting his own consulting firm. By the time this podcast airs, Ned will have retired from his role with the Institute, however his influence will be felt in New Hampshire and beyond for many years. Welcome to The Forge, Ned. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. So, is it true that Goodwill Industries plays an important part in your family history? <laughs> yeah, it does. It, it, it really does. My grandfather was the first Edgar James Holmes, um, started it in 1902. Started the whole uh, in thing? In Boston. Not, not started the whole local. thing. Wow. Started the whole thing, Goodwill International. He, uh, he was a Methodist minister, and uh, he had really wanted to be a missionary um, going overseas. Uh, but the bishop that he talked to said, no, I'm going to send you to an inner city church in Boston. And so Boston became a sort of the, the centerpiece of it. And um, what my grandfather was noticing is that there were uh, a lot of immigrants, uh, a lot of people with disabilities, that type of stuff, who were having a very rough time, and yet he'd see people in the audience, in, in his uh, attendance on Sundays that were doing okay. Mm -hmm. And so he actually physically grabbed a burlap bag one day and said, okay, I'm going to go start calling on some of my more affluent parishioners and gathering up their clothes. But the idea behind it um, was that it was not just, I'm going to hand them to somebody else, but you, we've got to have work for these folks. And so if there were shoes that needed repair or clothes that needed mending or furniture that needed to be fixed, he would hire people to do that from the population that he was serving. And then he noticed that there were a lot of people that wanted to do the work, but they had kids, so they couldn't come in. So he started one of the, the first daycare center in, in Boston. Wow. And went on from there and, and really became um, kind of a pioneer in, in what he called the social mission. And, um, you know, some of the sayings that are still associated with goodwill, not charity, but a chance, not a handout, but a hand up, became central to it, which is that, uh, well, you know, basically from a religious point of view, faith without works is dead. And so mm -hmm. he started it and became kind of the Johnny Appleseed of it. And, and during his life, he not only uh, started more goodwills in the United States, but also he started some in Europe. And uh, so uh, it, kind of an extraordinary legacy, really was. That's really neat. Yeah. Did, did, does your family connection kind of with this kind of public service, is that, it, how did that affect your ideas about where you would go when, you know, as you kind of grew up? was this a Always kind of grew up with this notion within the family that it was about service. Okay. Um, there were 
let me see, two or three ministers. My dad is the 11th of 12 kids. So (laughs) when we'd have a family get together, you know, it was kind of like going to Fenway Park. Um, But there was always this sense of mission um, that you had a certain obligation. I told the story last week of my father, the first sermon he ever preached, he would always repeat the first sentence. And he was quoting uh, an evangelist at the time. I can't remember the evangelist's name, but the first sentence. Um, sentence in his first sermon was, Dr. John Jones once said to a group of young people, what is your mission in life? And, you know, sort of growing up in a household, my dad was a Methodist minister. Mm -hmm. Uh, He served the pastoral ministry for about 24 years, and then uh, he worked um, as a field chaplain for Belchertown State School, um, working with folks with learning disabilities, both, both the families and the patients or the people themselves, and also with the staff. And I think, honestly, of those two parts of his career, he had the the largest passion for the latter, a real sense of service. So it was always in the back of my mind that that service in some way was an important thing to do, and it just sort of stuck with me right from the very beginning. So you went to... You went to college at Drew University, and you yep. got a BA in political science. So, mm-hmm. where is Drew University? Drew's down in New there? Jersey. Um, oh. Just it's in Madison, New Jersey, just about twenty miles west of New York City. Okay. Um, interestingly, Drew has a background. Uh, it, it, there's also a Methodist seminary there, and my dad was a oh. Methodist minister. So there's a so, connection. Yeah. yeah. So oh. that's that's how it kind of came on the radar scope of, of being a school. And then we went down. On my dad and I drove down. And I did the interview, and it was one of those things that just kind of worked out pretty well because um, after the interview was over, the guy that was interviewing me said, if you want to come here, we'll admit you. So nice. that was in my junior year, and I went, whoa, you, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> so we filled out the application, and I and I went to Drew. It's a lovely, lovely school, um, just a, a gorgeous campus. And it's good, you know, aside from the fact that it has a seminary, um, the, the founding of the seminary is interesting. There's a guy named Daniel Drew. Hence the name. Okay. Who made a boodle of money on Wall Street. And um, not all of it in great ways. Watered stock became uh, a phrase that Daniel Drew was sort of the beginner of. And so a lot of people referred to the founding of the seminary as Drew's Fire Escape. Um, so. <laughs> okay. But I... Yeah, I was down there, um, and then uh, I graduated actually in January 1967. So okay, and what was your first job coming out of out of college? My first job coming out of college was becoming a lieutenant in the United States Army. And this was in 1967. 1967, Vietnam War war was raging. You know, it, it was fairly clear that this was before the they had the what did they call it, the drawing numbers for the for the draft. This okay. was before that. So probably everybody was going to get drafted. And so I figured, well, if that's a possibility, what is it that I would want rather do? And okay. I decided I would rather be a, an officer. And okay. So What um, branch were you? I was in the United States Army. In, but in the, the infantry. In the infantry, okay. Yeah. So I uh, signed up to go to infantry OCS, and I went to basic and advanced infantry training at Fort Dixon, New Jersey, and then went down to Fort Benning, Georgia, to 
the Army Pacific. Infantry School, okay. mm-hmm. or Benning School for Boys, as we called it at the time. <laughs> and uh, I'm a graduate I went of the through... Benning School for Boys as well. Yeah. What's that? I'm a graduate of the Benning School for Boys as Are well. Are you really? Yes, I am. What year? Uh, 1989. No kidding. Yeah. Well, we have a group of guys um, uh, that graduated together, and we do reunions from time to time. Well, we do them every year. I go from time to time. And uh, I think it was probably about six, seven years ago. We did it down in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and one of our little side trips was we went back and went through our barracks and went through all the places in <laughs> at Benning and, you know, looked at, oh, my God, did I run this far every day? <laughs> yeah, no. Well, as you know, it's um, it's an amazing experience, frankly. Yeah. Um, I've so, said to folks that, of all the things that I've done, getting my bachelor's at Drew and my master's here at UNH, I think the most intense and probably the education that's had the most lasting effect in my life were those six months. At Benning? Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think in large part because of the uh, that that part of the, the program called the leadership curriculum, mm-hmm. which goes mm-hmm. for the entire six months and really... A lot of the stuff they do you find in Outward Bound and mm-hmm. all sorts of leadership and confidence training now. And uh, it was an, an intensity to it, but um, it was it was uh, rather amazing, Yeah, I thought. Yeah. So you went through Officer Basic, and then did you go to Vietnam? Did you? Yeah, Vietnam? I did. I, I spent uh, about six months at Benning. I, was, I taught at the Ranger Training Command. Oh, wow. Okay. And then um, I was over in Vietnam for a year. I had a uh, surveillance platoon. It was stationed up in Quang Tree right on the demilitarized zone. And it wasn't a combat platoon, but we had primitive, but at the time, by, by today's standards, but it was a thing called McNamara's Wall. And it was uh, sensors and searchlights and all sorts of stuff that really stretched across the DMZ and then down along the Laotian border. And we would monitor those. They'd pick up, you know, seismic vibrations as troops moved and stuff like that and we would actually go out put them in the ground you know do all that sort of stuff and then uh, monitor them 24 7 and when folks were meandering by those things in hours late at night we would call an interdiction and stuff like that so that was my okay that was my job for a year okay how did your experience in the Army kind of shape your thoughts on leadership, and, and did it have an effect on your future career plans, or did you take a completely different Well, I took a little bit of a different um, tack, but it had a huge effect on my notion of leadership. You know, collaboration, coordination, confidence, mutual respect, all those things. I think in, a, in an environment other than you know, a war environment would be things, oh, that's a nice characteristic to have. And, oh, we'll try to do that. But in a more heated environment, they're absolutely required. So Um, what kind of characteristics are you talking about? uh, Confidence in each other, the willingness to trust other people, to build up confidence, to have camaraderie, to be able to know that everybody can be trusted to do not only their job, but to sort of have your back, if you will. Remember the one, I I got a call one day, and we had a bunch of guys stationed right on the DMZ, and I got a call, and they said, Lieutenant, can you get up here right away? And I 
jumped on a helicopter and got up there in about 10 minutes. Went into a bunker, and there were two groups of people on either side of the bunker. It was a group of blacks and a group of white guys, and everybody was locked and loaded. And oh, my. There were, uh, they were not having a good time. They were arguing. And so I went through the process of, you know, first of all, getting everybody to kind of cool down a little and then finding out what had been the problem and working that through and, da -da -da, you know, all the things you have to do. Yeah. And so about a year and a half after that, when I was working for the Office of Health Planning in New Hampshire, my boss said to me, okay, um, now listen, we're going into this meeting and there's some legislators that really disagree with some of the stuff that we're doing and there's some folks on the other side. So it could be a really tense situation. And I said, will anybody be carrying a locked and loaded weapon? <laughs> and he said, no, why? And I said, I think it'll be it'll easier be okay. than you think. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of gives you a framework to it think about. It does give you a framework. Yeah. And when you're doing something like that when you're 25 years old, yeah. I, I, I was always struck by some of the responsibilities and things you had to take on that you never would have thought yeah. two years previously when you're in college yeah. you're going to be in this situation. Mm -hmm. And it uh, puts an afterburner on what I would call sort of the, the maturity that you need to have in order to contribute your best in, in terms of not just being as good a leader as you can be, but having other people understand what their role is in that. And I've always tried in that regard to look for ways when you're in a professional relationship that you're trying not only to lead in the situation, but to identify ways that other people involved can take a leadership role as well to build their confidence. And it's, it's, uh, it's just such a critical factor. And I remember that one of the early themes in the leadership curricula going through OCS was they spent a lot of time talking about the difference between a boss and a leader. And uh, that's not the type of stuff uh, the type of education that you'd necessarily get someplace else. I think you could, you know, go through an MBA program and not talk about the the dynamics, the personal dynamics. How do you work in a group? How do you pull folks out? How do you do this, do that? And um, I I just think that's just so critical. And, and it w it was formative. Okay, great. So when did you? So you wound up going in 1971. You got out of the army and yep. you came back to New Hampshire. Um, and started working in the Office of Health Policy and Planning. Yep. Uh, how did you make the jump from infantry <laughs> yeah. to health? Well, it was interesting because when I came here, interestingly enough, I started the MPA program, and there were about five guys who had just gotten back from Vietnam who were in the class with me. And it was interesting talking to them. And there was a guy, professor in the political science department, a guy named Tom Trout, and another one named uh, Larry O'Connell. And um, they were really good people. At the time, what I thought I wanted to do was uh, to get my master's degree and then get a Ph.D. in political philosophy and teach. That's sort of what I had in my mind because I, I love politics, you know, the academic politics. I love philosophy, history. But I was talking to Tom Trout, who had been an uh, officer in the Marine Corps, and he said, you're really thinking about academics? <laughs> and he was uh, he was cautionary about academics. It was kind of interesting. And then Larry, who was my advisor, and I think was the one that got me in because I didn't have a stellar record in undergraduate school, 
was very, very helpful in just in, in terms of having me think about, you know, what what is this education about American government, public administration all about? And and the way I got into health planning is it's not that I sat down and said, okay, what are the fields that might be of interest? But after I got my degree, I was on a job search and I'd gone down to Washington, D.C. And actually, I interviewed for and subsequently got the job, but I had already taken another one as, as uh, a research assistant in the Library of Congress. And then I went up to Toronto, as I recall, and I was someplace else. And I got this call from Larry O'Connell and he said, hey, my next door neighbor works for the Office of Health Planning over in Concord, and uh, they got a slot open. Would you be at all interested in talking to her? I said, yeah, sure. So I came back from this trip, and Sally and I went over to Concord, and we were walking up and down Main Street, you know, kind of looking around, and um, it was before the presidential primary back in that time. And so there was a guy named Pete McCloskey, who was a Republican. He's a former Marine officer from Korea. And he was running against Richard Nixon because of his opposition to the war and having just come and come back from that and seeing, in my judgment, what an extraordinary uh, policy failure it was and the extraordinary price it was exacting. I said, oh, let's go in and see what his brochures are like. Well, we went in. We met the guy who was the field director. We were chit-chatting with him for a while. He said, why don't you come across the street to this law firm, Orrin Reno, and Bob Reno is running the campaign. I'd like you to meet him. So we walked across the street. Well, by the time we left, we'd, Sally and I had both been offered jobs as field organizers for the McCloskey campaign. <laughs> so I walked into my first interview with uh, the health planning office already having a job, job that paid nothing uh, uh, <laughs> to be, okay. you know, it paid, it did pay, but not a lot. Yeah. So at any rate, Sally and I realized, hey, we're going to stay in New Hampshire, which was really pretty exciting for us. We'd met in Washington okay. when I was in grad school at American University just before I went in. I, I did a semester of grad school before okay. I went in the Army. Okay. And so I, I, I met with the folks there and... It was a really interesting job. I, uh, the, the, the whole notion was, interestingly enough, not profoundly different from some of the stuff that's going on today. It was how can you engage all kinds of constituencies, not just the medical constituencies, but others, in creating healthy communities. And it had a mechanism for setting up regional councils and all that sort of stuff. So it seemed like a really interesting job. So I took that job. Sally took the job as the field organizer for the McCloskey campaign, and we moved to Concord. So. Neat. <laughs> so you did that for four years. Yep. And then you got a job working for Senator Thomas McIntyre. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did that come about, and, and what did you do for the senator? Well, when, we, when I was going to grad school here, Sally had a job, and th there were a lot of community action programs, that type of thing. And so she worked with a group of folks for about three months, and then she took another job, actually, with uh, public TV and organized the first international conference of television programs for children. Mr. Rogers was the co-host. It was pretty interesting. But the first job she had was working for these bunch of, you know, young people who were with OEO and disadvantaged women for higher education. And there was a guy who became a very dear friend of ours, uh, named Ron Andrews, who was head of it. And so I got to know Ron then. And so when I was working in the health planning office, I got a call from Ronnie one day and he said, hey, 
this young woman named Kathy Upton from McIntyre's office just called me and said, would I be interested in going down to Washington, D.C. to do some health stuff? Because Ron was in the health area. And he said, I'm, I'm not really there for, you know, I, I, I don't want to leave right now. I'm not interested in going down to D.C. Do you want to talk to her? I said, sure. So I ended up talking to her and then another fellow, Bob Spann, who was the legislative director, and I got the job. And off I went to Washington, D.C., and Sally and I rented our house because we knew we were going to come back okay. and went down. And the reason they wanted to hire somebody in the health area is that at that time, there were a lot of hearings going on on national health insurance. Ted Kennedy had his bill at the one end, uh, and then on the other end was a, a guy from Connecticut, Abe Ribicoff. And Senator Ribicoff had a, basically a catastrophic plan. You know, you... Every, everybody's going to be covered after they've absorbed bills up to whatever the figure was. And McIntyre's plan, interestingly enough, he was a co-sponsor. And he didn't have a strong person on his staff. You know, Kathy was doing some of the stuff. So I basically went down and, you know, I took care of health and human services and all that as a legislative assistant. But the prime issue that I was dealing with was health care. So I... I got to do the final editing on the national health insurance bill for that, and it, it was it was pretty interesting. Wow. It was pretty interesting. It wow. was a great time. And then I came back up and ran Senator McIntyre's office. Okay. In the state, and in 1978, there was a guy who was a hospital administrator from Newport who was going to run for Congress in the second district. And about three weeks before the filing period would be over, he just had a change of heart and said. I'm not doing it. So the Democratic Party was going, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We've got to have a candidate, even though the chances of winning. And so I talked to Sally, and I said, geez, you know, never up, never end. So uh, I, uh, I, ran, I ran for Congress. Yeah, good for you. In 1978. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jim Cleveland was the incumbent. He'd been in there for 18 years. And uh, so I ran against Jim and did the best I could and got my gentleman's C in that campaign. <laughs> and then after that, in that same election, a guy named Hugh Gallon mm -hmm. was in the race, and I knew Hugh quite well, and uh, he won for governor. And okay. so after the race was over, he came to me. He said, hey, would you consider coming to work for me and the staff? And so you worked, worked in, the, in the governor's office for a period of time, yep. and then, and then you, shortly thereafter you transitioned to be the Commissioner of Health and Welfare, which yep. today is, I think, the Commissioner of Health and Human Services? It's the same. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you stayed in that position through to 1983. What was the mission of Health and Welfare back then, and what was your role? Well, it was really an interesting time. Ronald Reagan had come in as president. There was the new federalism. Obviously, there was an economic tough time, not nearly as tough as 2008, 2009. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's apparent, but I think not always in front of us, that in the worst of times, the business of the Department of Health and Human Services is overwhelming. Uh, you've got more people that need food stamps, more people that can't find jobs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so part of the job was trying to figure out how, at a time when the government was trying to squeeze every penny out and cut things and the federal government was reducing it. How could you maintain services to people? Oh. But one of the major things that was going on was we were in the midst of a lawsuit here in the state. There were class action lawsuits all over the country 
about the treatment of special needs population, the developmentally disabled. And we had a school, Laconia State School, which was housing six, 700 people, not in good conditions at all. And so the federal government had brought a lawsuit. Um, and so here we were in Gallon v. whatever. And I had, when I was in the governor's office, been working as a liaison with the department to say, okay, what's your position? Because the previous governor had said, the hell with the feds. They can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do whatever I want. He had some people over in mental health, Ron Andrews, the name from before, a guy named Don Shumway, who's also been a commissioner subsequently, and a guy named Jack Melton, who was running Laconia State School. We were basically testifying in front of the legislature, shame on you for what you're doing to those people. At the same time, the governor was saying, we won't let the feds budge us. And in fact, that had been a huge issue in the governor's race. So Gallon gets elected, I work in his staff, and then I go over to Health and Human Services. And so one of the things that we did is we crafted uh, a plan called Action for Independence, which, you know, we had one group of people saying, you got to shut that school down, send everybody out right away. You had another group of parents, these were parents primarily, and they had another group of parents saying, no, 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 the kids could never, these people could never get along in the community. You've got to expend huge amounts of money up to Laconia State School. So in, in the interim period, we had to balance that. We had studies going on to not only assess the capability of some of those folks to move into communities, but we had to create welcoming communities. And we knew that for every person up at Laconia State School, there's probably a twin of that person out in the community being cared for by a parent or a relative. And we had no idea of the scope of that population other than the heads we could count at Laconia. So we went through an entire process. We created a plan called Action for Independence. And we didn't say we're going to close Laconia State School immediately or we're going to expand it indefinitely. We basically said we're going to set up a plan that allows the state to take action so that these individuals can live a life as fully independent as they possibly can. And we're going to create that independence where it makes the most sense. Long story short, New Hampshire became the first state in the country to close its institution for the mentally retarded and the developmentally disabled. Oh, wow. And then we had another lawsuit pending because there was a lot of warehousing going on at our state hospital for the chronically and acutely mentally ill. And so I went to legal assistance and said, do we really have to go through another lawsuit? And I started a commission called the Nardi Wheelock Commission, and essentially, as a result of that, we formed our relationship with uh, Dartmouth Medical School Department of Psychiatry. We built the new tertiary care facility in Concord, built up a, a bunch of community facilities. So, you know, aside from running the business of the Department of Health and Human Services, the major things that went on were really, I think, we completely reformed the way we looked at and dealt with special needs population. And I, I think it was a really creative time. I look back at it and think it's, it's, um, it was not only interesting and exhausting at times, but rewarding to see where we ended up. And it, where we ended up was years after I left, but we initiated the process, and that was what was fun. How did your experience in, in this position, how did leadership in this role differ from prior leadership roles that you've had? Being commissioner of 
Health and Human Services in the state of New Hampshire, I think, personally, is, is the hardest job in state government. The problem is that, you know, uh, the, the guy that appointed me, Hugh Gallon, he and I had some very, very difficult times because here he was as governor trying to balance the fact that they had decreasing revenues. This is during the Arab oil embargo. We had two snowless winters in a row, and this is before snowmaking and all that sort of stuff. So the revenue's drying up. Demands for the skiing, are going up. For the skiing uh, and, and And I'm, uh, I'm in this place where I'm saying, Hugh, you know, we, we need more resources. And he said, there are none. And, and it, was, it was really, really difficult. And then on the other side, you had the legislature. And during Hugh's term, it was controlled by Republicans, both of them. And so here you are as the head of an agency, and you know that the governor has constraints. You know that the legislature has a different point of view, and you're trying somehow or other to present in as factual and compelling a way as you can what you need to do. At the same time, behind you are advocacy groups who are convinced, and probably rightly so, that no matter what you're able to accomplish, it's not going to be enough. And I, I remember one time, I, I, I was trying to provide leadership. There were, there were these things called, um, I can't remember exactly the name, but in each county we had a um, human resources planning committee. And it was to look at all human services in that region and be able to help and assist so it was targeted and focused. And so I went to them and said, we got less than no money, so here's what I want you folks to do. These, these agencies had been built up with 90% federal money, 10% state. So they had good staffs of people wanting to do the right thing. I said, you've got to help me by prioritizing the needs in each of your areas. I need to know the most important things because we are not going to have the resources to do everything. And I said, i got a tight time frame. I've got to get the budget together, and I can't remember what it was now, maybe six weeks, whatever it was. And so we had a meeting at the end of that period of time, and their report to me was, everything's important. Okay. And so I went in, and, and when I started to make the cuts that I needed to make, I eliminated all those planning councils. And so I eliminated probably two or 300 jobs. And I remember going into the hearing and sitting down, and all those two or 300 people are behind me, and you know, we're the voice of the people and all that sort of stuff. But I said, yeah, if the voice of the people can only tell me everything's important. I don't need to pay for that. And so you find yourself in a position where you've got to use what I refer to as political jujitsu. If you're going to make progress, you've got to find out which way people are leaning and pull them in that way and towards a constructive end, as opposed to keep pushing them. No, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And so we were able to get the acceptance of Action for Independence. We were able to get buy-in to the Nardi Wheelock report. We also did a reform of public health in terms of moving from you know moving toward from communicable diseases to chronic chronic illness and getting focused on smoking cessation and healthy eating and active living and all that sort of stuff as opposed to the old model. But it taught me. <laughs> I think the biggest lesson is. And I mentioned this the other day. I had a retirement thing over at uh, in Concord at the law school um, a couple of weeks ago. 
And I said one of the most important things that I discovered during that public service phase of my life was that you had to overcome your fear of potential failure or disappointment. Because if you didn't do something because you were afraid you might fail, you weren't going to be able to do what you needed to do. You had to take that on. And I think some people in leadership position and in other things in life are just saying, well, I, I could try that, but it might not work. You've, you've got to say, if you just stand there, you're going to get crushed. And so you've got to overcome that fear. And that means that you have to be able, in making the decision of the direction you're ultimately going to go in, since there will probably not be a perfect one, mm-hmm. you've got to get the opinions and ideas of everybody you're going to be dealing with. But you sure as heck shouldn't expect that somehow or there's going to be something that satisfies everyone. Ultimately, you have to make the decision, you know, Harry Truman, buck stops here. Right. And so that's, um, that's an important lesson. It's also sobering because you realize your own limitations. But you realizing those, you've still got to retain a strong enough sense of self that you're willing to take those risks, that you believe that you've tried to the best you possibly could to get all the information, but ultimately you have to make a decision and push in a direction. Okay. So in 1983, you took another risk, and that was you founded your own company, mm-hmm. Helms & Company. Mm-hmm. What did Helms & Company do, and, and um, what we was did, uh, We did consulting in, in the healthcare field. Um, before, I, I was, a guy named John Sununu had been governor, and, and when he, he beat Hugh Gallon, and when he was running, I was one of these three or four young people that had been appointed by Hugh Gallon. He said, oh, they can't run a lemonade stand. And then after he got elected, we actually forged a really good relationship. And I think, I think I'm quite confident because we'd had enough conversations that if I had gone to him and said, I'd really like to have another term, uh, I'd, I believe we could have done it, um, even though you know, we started off on different sides. But I went to him and said, no, I think it's time for me to go. And so off I went. And I looked at a couple different things. I had a very good friend who was um, doing some planning and development business in in the central part of the state and other places. But then I ultimately decided that if I wanted to continue to do the type of stuff that I'd been doing, and that is work in the health and human service field and create and uh, support positive change as the system was evolving because by no means was it perfect that I could best do that potentially by going into this consulting business. And so with a good friend of mine, Mike Degnan, who was at Wang Laboratories and stayed down there for about four months, he didn't join the firm until about four or five months um, after I'd started it. I just had an office and a princess phone plugged into the wall and I had Forged a very good relationship with a, a guy who was a real mentor for me at Concord Hospital, a guy named Dick Warner, who was the administrator. And we had we had identified a project uh, that we could work with. And so I, I left Health and Human Services with one client. Okay. And uh, I started it from there. And then Mike came in and joined me. And um, interestingly, the project that we had lined up for Mike to work on from the time he left Wang Laboratories, and it fell apart. It was a state project that didn't get funded. But something else came up, and long story short, 
uh, we just we just cobbled it and built it. We found that when we we would help institutions do something together, like we started a company that shared magnetic resonance imaging machines among them between them. Started another one that did lithotripsy between them collaboration. We started a thing called Diabetes Centers of New Hampshire. We had a number of these five six hospital coalitions. Once it got started and got approved by the state to go forward, they'd have a tough time running it because everybody at the institutions, the CEOs would kind of let go and they'd hand it off to their department of radiology or whatever. And the department started fighting about who's going to be in charge. And so the CEOs would look at this and they'd come back to us and go, we got a warring factions here. The same guys that testified, this is wise, are now saying, I need more time than you and blah, 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 blah. So what happened is uh, that Helms and Company went back in and became the managers of those joint ventures. And we started a, a thing called Be- Behavioral Health Network, which is a coalition of all the community mental health centers to take on capitated risk for mental health. First client was Blue Cross Blue Shield. We took over their mental health coverage. And we also um, did a lot of business running hospitals for interim periods of time when leadership left. So okay. it was really fun. I, I, I think we did a, a lot of really creative things, a lot of organizations that are still in running. So I did that until uh, I decided to take another stab at elective office. And yeah, and so in 1992, you ran for governor. Yeah. What was that like? What it, how How is running a campaign different than, say, running... The other organizations you had. Well, I, I don't know if a campaign can ever be run, you know, <laughs> they okay. run you. Okay. Um, I will say, in, in 1978, when I ran for Congress, there was no way any Democrat I w- would win. No way. No way at all. And so you take this on and you say, well, how am I going to do this in a way that becomes a learning experience and a positive experience and leaves a good taste in people's mouth? And I ended up knocking on about 20,000 doors and all that sort of stuff. But I knew from the very beginning that I would try my very best. But absent some sort of miraculous intercession, I wasn't going to be the next congressman. When I ran for governor, it was different. I was older. It was a different phase of my life. And I thought there was a very good chance for whoever the Democrat was to, to be successful. So I got into the race and then... Uh, there was a woman, Arnie Arneson, who ultimately became the nominee for the Democratic Party, who was really uh, far to my left. And then a former congressman from the first CD, Norm Damore, who was really far to my right, and I was in the middle. And I also, Arnie was running full-time all the time for, for about a year. And primary was in September, and I couldn't leave the job because I needed to earn money until May. I think we ran a good campaign. I think we did some things that were really important. I really enjoyed it. Arnie ran a great field campaign, and she won the nomination, and she went on, and she she got the most votes in the general election that any Democrat had gotten. But also, more Republicans voted against the Democrats than had ever voted before. And the, and the central issue was she was an ardent advocate to put an income tax in the state. And I said that there was no, unless there was a guarantee that all the revenue from the income tax would go back to the cities and towns, it would be inappropriate because we already have a broad-based tax called the property tax. It's inequitable. And that was, you know, and Norm Demore was all veto anything no matter what. 
And so you find yourself in the middle, and sometimes it's, you know, what, you know it's, it's just a tough position to be in. But um, I don't regret doing it. I, I had, uh, I will say, the, the people that you meet and the things that you do in a campaign are really extraordinary. And I'm not sure how it affects leadership, but it affects understanding in an extraordinary way. I mean, Sally and I don't usually go out on Saturday nights to VFWs and, you know, dance and chit-chat. Back in those days, you know, breathe smoke for two and a half hours. <laughs> but the people we met, going places, you know, Sally became the best line dancer in the North Country and uh, just just the people you meet day-to-day, door-to-door, in their workplaces. Those two experiences in 78 and 92 gave me such a deep appreciation for this state and what people are dealing with in a, in a way that you could not possibly understand it unless you'd spent all those days, you know, walking through other workplaces, walking down streets. And so it's, uh, it's enriched my understanding of New Hampshire. In, in in great ways, would have been fun to win. But, sure, sure, you know, yeah. Well, that's 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 fascinating. Better up than in. You did a little bit. Long, you did another couple of years at Helms and Company, and then you got recruited over to Blue Cross, mm-hmm. and you were initially the senior vice president of marketing and sales. Yep. But you, it seems like you transitioned fairly quickly to be the chief administrative officer. What yep. is what is the chief administrative officer, and kind of how does that translate into sure. standard kind of C suite? The guy that was the president of Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, called me up, a guy named Joe Marcel, wonderful fellow, and um, said, hey, can you come down and talk to me? And so I went down, and he said, listen, I got an idea. How would you like to come here? Is, uh, I'm, I'm looking for a senior VP for marketing and sales. And we talked about what position would be, and I said, yeah, I'd be interested in doing that, but, you know, I... I don't want to leave my colleagues at Helms and Company high and dry. And he said, well, that's the other part of my idea. I'd like to take a 50% ownership share in Helms and Company. But you'll have to sever all your ties, obviously, with Helms and Company. You can't have anything to do with their dealings. So I went back up to the partners, my other partners, and said, okay, here's the deal. What do you think? And um, I, I think we all warmed up to task. And it was just an exciting opportunity for me, but it was also an, a, a good opportunity for the firm. And I think that uh, the firm is, you know, I said they got rid of the dead word and then they took off like a rocket. Um, but I went down and, and became the senior VP, became a part of the leadership team. And at that time, they had a consulting group going through a complete reengineering of the structure of the organization. And um, one of the things that they felt was that there had to be more structure given to the leadership team. And so we actually went through a planning process, a strategic planning process that I led. And it led to the formation of a strategic team, which I chaired, an operations team, which the fellow who was our chief information officer chaired. And then there was the executive management team. And Joe is the president sat at the table for that, but what they decided to do was rather than have him be the president and also have to run the meetings and do all that, I became the chair of the executive management team. 
So I would, you know, put the agendas together, run the meetings, make sure this new structure with these teams was working, and Joe would continue to be CEO. What happened during that period of time also was that we began some explorations with both Maine Blue Cross and, and, and Massachusetts Blue Cross about potentially merging. And so it was pretty clear that Joe wanted to leave. And so he brought in another fellow named Dave Jensen, who ultimately became the CEO. And Dave, as that transition was going on, asked me if I would be the chief administrative officer. And by that, what he would do is I would continue to chair the executive management team. I'd continue to oversee marketing and sales, all those areas. But I'd also take on responsibility for planning and, 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 and those type of functions as well. So we had a, Dave was the CEO, then we had a guy named Tom Congoran, who was the chief operating officer, who sort of ran the trains on time and did all the business stuff. And I had a chief administrative officer where I would administer the way the leadership team worked. And also, for a whole host of reasons, which are much too long a story, we we moved from the conversations with Maine and Massachusetts to one with Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. So I helped oversee the um, transition during that sale, kind of coordinated all the regulatory work and approvals that had to get done. And now Blue Cross Blue Shield, when you were working there, was a nonprofit. It was a not-for-profit corporation. Anthem is a for-profit? Well, interestingly enough, when Anthem began the discussions and when they took us over, they were not a for-profit corporation. They oh, were okay. cooperative. Uh, so they were owned by the shareholders. Okay. Very different configuration. But very, very soon after, the, what, what happened was Anthem was in the process of merging or taking over both New Hampshire and Maine. Maine's transaction was about a year behind ours. And so our whole team stayed in place. You know, we worked with the folks from Anthem, but Dave and myself and the others stayed in place in New Hampshire for that year while they were finishing the main deal. But during that year, uh, Anthem itself converted itself from a cooperative insurance company to a for-profit shareholder-owned company. And I would say that there was also a transition from of the CEO, who had been the CEO when we did the deal to a new CEO, some of the same management group. And it's not to cast dispersions, but a for-profit stock-owned company has a different way of operating than a co-op. I mean, if you're owned by the shareholder, I mean, if you're owned by the members, you operate in one way. If you're owned by shareholders who are expecting return, you operate in a different way. And so there came a point where I sort of said to myself, hmm, what do I want to do? And I decided, no, I want to take off. Okay. So, so you took off and came here. It was interesting. I was still working at Anthem, and I got a call from Dave Pearson, who was the uh, acting dean who I knew over here at the College of Health and Human Services. And he said, listen, we've been trying to fill this position in the Institute for Health Policy for a year. You'd be perfect. Can you come over and talk to the then president, Joanne Leitzel? And I really want you to think about taking the job. And so um, I said, great, send me the job descriptions. And so I got the job description and I read it and I went in to see Joanne Leitzel and I said, okay, I have one question. Why are you talking to me? 
It's because the job description said you have a PhD, you bring in a book of research, da 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 da. And she said, I'll tell you the reason why. We've been fishing in the wrong pond. You know, to start this institute, it's less important that we have a PhD with a book of research. It's more important that we have somebody who's been an entrepreneur, who knows the marketplace out here, and can establish a program that will really flourish. So that's what we're looking for, and we really want you to take this job. And so I did. Um, and four and a half months, four months after, you know, it was there's a blank slate, Ned, you know, build it up. You can do what you want to do. Well, I walked around and started talking to folks here and uh, discovered that there wasn't a blank slate. Everybody would reach into their drawer and they'd pull out, you know, a stone tablet with things etched into it as to their expectations. And uh, so about four months into it, I walked into Dave Pearson. I said, David, you and I have both made a horrible mistake. I should have never taken this job. You should have never offered it to me because uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to move anything. I will be very honest with you. The, you know, I knew what the marketplace wanted. If they have a problem, they want you to work with them and solve it quickly. And so I would say, okay, who are the folks we have around here? And Yeah, we get some great scholars and some people that really understand health management policy and nursing and all this sort of stuff. But you'd go say, hey, listen, I have a project that we really need to deliver. Um, and they say, oh, love to work on it. Can you talk to me next summer? I could talk to you, but by then the project will be gone. And so I went over and talked to a fellow who was running another institute here on campus who I'd known, Dennis Meadows. He was a really interesting fellow. And I said, Dennis, I'm having the toughest time. And he said, let me give you one piece of advice. If you want to be successful in a center, don't count on tenure-track faculty members. They, the rewards in this system are set up in a very, very different way. It's not to drop everything, forget about that publication, let's solve this problem in the marketplace. And, and that's been a tension right from the very beginning. But we've, we've sort of overcome it in a way. I've got um, almost, with two exceptions, out of the 26 people that work at the Institute, everybody is a P&T or professional and technical staff, and they've had extensive experience doing stuff out in the marketplace. And we're a, a small portion of my salary is supported by the university. Everything else is soft money. And soft money mean what? What's that? What does soft money mean? Soft money means uh, grant money. In other words, uh, the, 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 it's, it's not we're getting the salary from, from the university and, you know, go out and hunt grants, and in the meantime, we'll cover your salary. So everything is grant-supported. It comes from federal, state, foundation grants. And uh, we've gone from when I came here, there was, you know, one grant coming in to the point now where, you know, well, the there was one of me, and now there's 26 of us, and, and um, you know, we are operating on about four and a half to five million dollars a year that we bring in to uh, wow. to grants. So by the time this podcast airs, you'll, yep. you'll have retired. Um, what will you look back on in your time at the Institute as kind of your biggest accomplishments or the things you're most proud of? Um. We've been a significant factor. We have four areas that we focus in on. In long-term care and aging, we, we do that in conjunction with the Institute in Disability. And I think in that area, over the course of the last 13, 14 years, 
we have made a huge contribution uh, to how we view the future for older adults, that we will not rely on institutions, that there will be more community resources. The Center for Aging and Community Living, uh, which we run jointly with the Institute on Disability, has created, uh, in conjunction with the state of New Hampshire, um, several programs um, that there, there's the service link resource centers where people go in who are saying, what am I going to do with mom or dad? And it helps them find the right place for their parents to be in the community setting. We've done a whole lot of stuff in terms of uh, changing the model about how we plan for and look for older adults. In the area of the second major area we have is health transformation and financing. Um, we've run a patient-centered medical home pilot project, which has led to huge innovation. Anthem is just about to announce that as a result of that pilot, they changed their contracting strategy to really focus on medical home and have achieved tens of millions of dollars of savings, which have gone back to the provider community as well as for lowering premiums. We've now got a group which is probably the largest learning collaborative working in New Hampshire, an accountable care uh, project in, in which we have at the table providers that represent about 35 to 40 percent of the insured population, both Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial. And um, we have the payers at the table. We have the state government at the table. We're working on projects to say, what are we going to do for folks who uh, are not getting the best services and also consuming a lot of dollars, people with chronic disease, with a comorbidity of depression. So we've got that going. We've run a citizen's health initiative, which has moved New Hampshire from 45th in electronic prescribing to 7th in the country. In the area of public health integration, we've done some really important work in trying to integrate public health and medical care. Wrote a document called Pound of Prevention, uh, which really set the frame for a new focus uh, on public health. And from there, we've done made numerous contributions uh, to the way public health is conceived now where it's far more of a partnership. And then we've established the Center for Health Analytics. And New Hampshire, along with the National Association of Health Data Organization, is now looked to as the national resource for how to use all-payer claims data because New Hampshire was the second of the 14 states that now have it. We've just, for a grantee, written a manual for states on how to develop these things. We've had funds from Robert Wood Johnson. So in all those areas, we've made really tremendous contributions to the way health and human services is organized and does its business. But I think if I had to say what's my biggest accomplishment, it's being able to look at the group of people that we've assembled and see what a strong, vibrant, brilliant, energetic, forceful, effective group of people they are. You know, it's, it's great to see the achievements in the marketplace. It's great to have a successful project. It's great to be nationally recognized as we are in analytics. Um, but it's um, incomparable, it seems to me, to be able to leave and say this has far and away been the most uh, rewarding professional experience of my life, in large part because of the group we've assembled and the work we've done and the power that they have that's going to be here long after I leave.
That's great. All right, that, that, that's great. We've got a few minutes left, so I want to try to, uh, I want to switch gears here. Sure. And uh, continue with that thought, but I want to talk about leadership specifically yeah. a little bit. And kind of going with that thought, uh, one of the important things that a leader does, of course, is create an organizational culture. Um, you've worked in a variety of organizations. How do the cultures compare and kind of what are the important elements of organizational culture that you've tried to create over the, over the different organizations that you've been in charge of? Yeah. What is, are there some commonalities? That you well, have? you know, it's, it's so, I mean, your point is so well taken about culture and, and the role it plays. Uh, you know, the phrase I use far too often, I hear my, my colleagues down there saying it all the time, culture trumps strategy every time. You can have the best strategy in the world, but culture is going to trump it. Um, another way of putting it is, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems to me that some situations are more difficult than others to try and create the to to try and change the culture. People people don't mind changing, but they don't want to be changed. Okay. And you have to understand that when you come into a situation. If you're creating it from the ground up, the Institute, Holmes & Company, my consulting firm, you can do a much better job at creating the right culture than if you come into a large organization, the United States Army, or more particularly my platoon and company in Vietnam, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Office of Health Planning, um, a, a senator's office. You have to be wise enough to really understand what is the culture that's in place and why is it in place? What are the things that allows the organization to do with excellence? And what are the things that that culture is keeping the organization to do uh, to achieve progress? And then you have to figure out how you can work with others, not to change the culture right away, but to become aware of it, to become aware of it collectively. Why is it? I remember when I went to Blue Cross Blue Shield, I was getting ready to do my first report to the board of directors as senior director of marketing. And um, I was getting the presentation together, and I said, listen, um, you know, is there a slide deck that you're putting together for this? Um, because, you know, should I merge my slide deck in? I can't remember what the technology was. It was probably overheads. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of my colleagues on the leadership team said, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't do slides for the board. Really? So, yeah, we did that about, oh, geez, eight or ten years ago we tried that and they really didn't like it at all. Eight or ten years ago you tried it once. And I've always felt that a picture is worth a thousand words, even my words. And so it's just sort of, well, you know, it would be really helpful if I could do this. Well, long story short, it, it worked out okay and the board started to say, gee, this is really very helpful. So. A couple, three meetings later, we're, we had a much more engaging way of dealing with the board and getting our points across. And, you know, that's just a really small example, but it, it's, it's tremendously important to understand that how did this culture get here in the first place? Why do you do it that way? And at the heart of it is some of the characteristics I talked about with you earlier. You, you've got to create... I believe you've got to create a culture where no one is afraid to speak their mind with respect and, um, and with the kind of professionalism you would expect. 
um, they can't feel that somehow or other if they raise a question or raise an issue or make a statement of what they think ought to happen, that somehow there's going to be retribution as opposed to attention. Everybody's got to understand that they're contributing, but they're not controlling, that the organization itself has to do that. And, you know, it goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier on, uh, you know, in terms of the military. Very, very top-down hierarchical organization, you know, you have to memorize the chain of command, who's in charge of what, or going up. And I, I remember at times I could see the extraordinary flaws in that as information would flow up and somehow or other by the time it got up to the top it was news the top wanted to hear as opposed to the reality that you were floating from the bottom. However, the other most fundamental part is that the smallest unit, unless you have a group of people who can communicate and work together well, who have confidence in one another, you're simply not going to be able to forge an effective organization. And so I I think that notion has been, it, it was it was a very a, a powerful influencer for me. And I've really enjoyed my time in large organizations because I think I was effective, um, you know, when I was commissioner. We redid three major systems of care um, in a meaningful way and, and in a lasting way. And when I was at um, Blue Cross Blue Shield, we we changed from a traditional insurance company to uh, a managed care organization that was trying to focus not only on, you know, just traditional old insurance rules, um, but also on the fact that we had a role in creating a healthy population and what we were doing to do that. But, Can I ask yeah, you um, sure. uh, just two last questions. One mm-hmm. is mentorship. How important was mentorship? for you Tremendous. to getting mentored, and how, how, how have you tried to be a mentor? Yeah. Um, it was very, very important to me uh, at different stages. Uh, Tom McIntyre, who's a U.S. Senator, was, was really instrumental, not in a direct one-on-one, sit down, talk, talk it through, but just seeing how he operated, he, was, uh, he would never forget that he was an elected official to represent a group of people as opposed to a powerful guy that everybody had elected. Uh, he didn't lose his head. He was humble. Um, he would be passionate. He was brave in the things that he did. He made some votes the year before his election that probably cost him his election. Um, but you can't be feared, fearful of, of, of you know, potential failure or disappointment. Uh, and him doing his job was more important than him keeping his job. Uh, a guy named Dick Warner, who I mentioned at Concord Hospital, he believed heart and soul um, that the way to progress in the health and human services area was through collaboration as opposed to competition. Just really, really, really important. So there have been several of those people along the way that have uh, been powerful influencers and mentors. What I've tried to do, um, and again, probably more within the two things that I started from scratch is to try and take what I think I've learned as lessons about how organizations can be successful and mentor people by helping them understand in, 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 in important ways how they can not only shape their ideas but share their ideas 
um, and that they're not just shaping their personal ideas and their personal direction, but they're doing that within a context of another organization with other people. I've tried to be um, really even-handed with that. I, I don't sort of say, okay, I'm just going to concentrate on one circle. I've tried to spread my time out with everybody in the organization, but most importantly, I've found that um, if I can be effective, and I think I have been, um, serving as, as, as a mentor of the leadership team and setting an example of the way you treat other people, the way you want to be treated, the fact that you can listen as carefully as you can talk, that I think sets a way for really creating the kind of culture that will last and be, be effective. Let's close on this one last question. Um, for someone just starting a, a career in healthcare, where would you point them if, you, if they wanted to make a real impact? And, and what education and skills should they be trying to pursue to be successful? Yeah. I, I think right now there's a gap between the way our educational system is set up and, and the way the marketplace is moving in terms of its operation. I think that we have to give a lot of attention at the educational level to making sure that whatever dis individual discipline we're working in, we're teaching everyone within those disciplines common skills. Um, problem solving, ways to work in group, the use of analytics, um, understanding how teams work effective, effectively. I talked to a lot of folks who are graduates and other people who are hiring folks. And the graduates will say, you did a marvelous job teaching me about my discipline, nursing, whatever it might be. But I wasn't prepared for this new environment that I'm working in. Medicine used to be extraordinarily hierarchical. It's not going to be effective if it stays that way. It's team sport. If we want to improve population health, we can't possibly do it with the medical system. That only affects 10% of the health outcomes. The others are behaviors, environment, all of those things. How are we going to shape that? Well, we're going to get at the root causes, you know, smoking, healthy, exercising, transportation, housing, education. Um, you know, if there's a group of people in the other room and we wanted to know if they were basically healthy, the three most important questions we'd ask is, what's their level of education, what's their housing status, and what about their employment? We'd have the best insight into whether or not they were by and large healthy. And so I think in our disciplines right now, we've really got to take that uh, into consideration. If I was advising folks, it would be a little bit counterintuitive because increasingly there are more and more requirements for our majors, and so we're limiting the space in which we can really cross-fertilize. And so I think uh, I would advise folks to not only look at a discipline, but look for uh, an academic institution that sees that discipline not only as a tremendously important one, but sees it as a part of an emerging system, which is in the midst of the most fundamental reform it's ever been in before. And it's less whether you seek a master's of science in analytics or a master's in public health or a master's in business administration or whatever it might be, or a bachelor in this and a bachelor in that. It's what's the environment of the place? What's it feel like? You know, when you talk to people 
um, you know, what kind of what kind of things are you going to learn? Not only about the discipline that's going to be on your diploma as your major, but how that fits into the world. Um, and I think there's some places where you could go and get a master's in public policy, which would be tremendously engaging and informative, but might not be as applicable if you had learned in a way where you're getting more experiential um, exposure to not just public policy itself and how it works, but how you actually implement it, what the barriers are, what kind of skill sets you're going to need, uh, not simply from an understanding of you know, epidemiology or whatever it might be, um, but how you put that to work. So um, it, for me, it's as, it's as much looking at the institution and their approach to preparing you for the world as mm -hmm. it exists today and tomorrow, mm -hmm. as opposed to looking for an institution um, where um, there is more isolation. And, you know, as I've referred to it before, you, you don't want to necessarily go to a place which is an aggregation of guilds, uh, and you pick your guild and you end, end up staying in it. You want to go into a place um, that's teaching you about the full marketplace that you're going to have to be masterful in, and uh, let that be your guide. Great. Thank you for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community today. No, I, it's, a, it's a pleasure to sit down with you. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll see you again in about two weeks.